Good evening, everyone. We're, we're going to get started. I want to welcome you all to the New York Historical Society. I'm Louise Mirror, New York Historical's president and CEO, and I am really thrilled to see all of you in our beautiful Robert H. Smith Auditorium. On view now is uh, a wonderful, very moving, and important exhibition, AIDS in New York, the first five years, uh, which I hope you will get to see if you have not already. And opening on June 21st is the exhibition Swing Time, Reginald Marsh and 30s New York. I hope you'll return during regular museum hours to visit uh, these two exhibitions and all the other exciting offerings at New York Historical, including our pay-as-you-wish Fridays from 6 to 8 p.m. I also want to uh, remind any of you in this auditorium who is not yet a member that members support all of our activities at this splendid institution. So I would encourage you to join. I have colleagues outside who will help you sign up. So um, please do not fail to join the New York Historical Society. Tonight's program, The Great Degeneration, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speakers series, which is the heart of our public programs. As always, I would like to thank Mr. and Mrs. Schwartz for their great support, which has enabled us to bring so many fine historians and writers to New York Historical. I want to thank uh, the many members of our Chairman's Council who are with us this evening. Um, thank you very much for all that you do to support this great institution. And I also want to thank from the bottom of my heart and recognize some members of our Board of Trustees in attendance this evening. Our Vice Chair, Pam Schaffler, Vice Chair and Chair-elect, Pam Schaffler. Thank you, Pam, for everything that you do for us. And also, Lon Jacobs, Trustees Lon Jacobs, Glenn Louie, Russell Penoyer, Richard Reese, and our speaker this evening, Neil Ferguson. Tonight's program will last about an hour, and it will include a question and answer session. Audience members will be asked to come up to standing microphones in the left and right aisles. We do this so that the speaker can hear your question, and so that all of the audience members can hear your question as well. Following the program, there will be signed copies of Professor Ferguson's book, The Great Degeneration, How Institutions Decay and Economies Die, um, available in the museum store. We are absolutely thrilled to welcome back Neil Ferguson to the New York Historical Society. Professor Ferguson is the best-selling author, uh, is a best-selling author, and he has written and presented five major documentary television series, including the Ascent of Money, which won the 2009 International Emmy Award for Best Documentary. He is the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of History at Harvard University and also a Senior Research Fellow at Jesus College, Oxford, uh, and a Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institute at Stanford, a columnist for Newsweek, and, as I said before, a very valued member of New York Historical's Board of Trustees. His most recent book is The Great Degeneration, How Institutions Decay and Economies Die. Now, before you join me in welcoming our speaker to the stage, I want to ask you to please make sure that anything like a cell phone that makes a noise is switched off. And now, please join me in welcoming Professor Neil Ferguson. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's a great Pleasure to be back home uh, in the New York Historical Society in this wonderful auditorium. Thanks, Louise, for all you've done for this great institution. 
I want to talk about institutions that are not in such good health as the New York Historical Society. And unfortunately, there are quite a few in that unhappy condition. To illustrate what I have to say, I'm going to do something that some of you may find a little unexpected. Instead of the usual dreary PowerPoint slides, we're going to enjoy the luxury of Prezi. The reason I'm doing this is, is not because I have an Al Gore complex. <laughs> it's just that some of the arguments that I, I want to make in the book may not convince you without the data. We're in the evidence-based community here at the New York Historical Society. And I'm going to give you the evidence that we have a problem. And this, this won't solve it. Some of you, just a guess, spent a good part of your afternoon listening very intently to the words of Ben Bernanke. <laughs> Parsing them, analyzing them, seeing if they work better in a different language. <laughs> and what you really wanted to know was whether this red line, which is in fact the annual growth rate of the Fed balance sheet, AKA the monetary base, was going to change direction. And if so, when? The number of people in this city, hey, wait a minute, in the world, who spent their afternoon focused on that man's words was truly mind-boggling. I am here to tell you that monetary policy, that central banks cannot alone fix what is wrong with our economy, much less what is wrong with our society. So this is the last slide I'm going to show you about monetary policy. Whether that line goes up, unlikely, or down, very likely, when it goes down, ultimately, is not as important as what I'm about to tell you tonight. Monetary policy has achieved this. What I've done in this chart is to compare three depressions. The one we've just been through, that's the yellowish, greenish line. The one that we went through, or our grandparents went through in the 1930s. And the one that nobody remembers at all that happened in the 1870s. Monetary policy is the reason, the number one reason why that line, the bright yellow green line, did not follow the crimson line all the way down to the bottom why we bounced back starting in the summer of 2009. Monetary policy has achieved that. That was the aim that Ben Bernanke set himself. He calls it the portfolio channel. And the idea is that recovery comes because your portfolios of equities regain the value that they had back in October 2007. Job done. By the way, one of the unintended consequences of this is to widen inequality in the United States since about 90% of the stocks are owned by 10% or less of the people. The other subject that has dominated discussion in the United States for the last five years 
has been fiscal policy. And there are those who believe, to the exclusion of almost all other subjects, that only fiscal policy really matters, and only if the deficit had been even larger would we have achieved a faster and more sustained recovery. This is wrong, though of course it's impossible to falsify, because we can never know what would have happened if the deficit had been even larger than 10% of gross domestic product in 2009. What we do know is that for political and other reasons, fiscal policy is no longer a game in town. Indeed, as you can see from this chart here, fiscal policy is essentially contractionary now, and the deficit will fall to between 2 and 3.5% of GDP in 2015, before again growing, and if we only knew what would happen after 2023, growing even larger after that. Just in case you'd got the idea that the fiscal problem had been fixed, dismiss that idea from your minds. But you know, I don't think fiscal policy is the key. And I don't buy the idea that an even larger deficit in 2009, or indeed now, would have overcome the problems that I'm going to talk about this evening. If that's the president, could you tell him I'm busy? <laughs> we all admire the president, but to make a speech at the Berlin Brandenburg Gate and not mention Ronald Reagan was, I think, a shocking lapse. Now, let us set... <laughs> Let us set the events, not just since 1989 when the war was indeed torn down. Let's set the events of the recent past in a longer-term perspective. I tried to do that in my last book, Civilization, the West and the Rest. This chart tells you all you need to know about world economic history since 1500. It's the simple, simple, everything-in-one-chart story. Okay, so <laughs> These are three ratios per capita gross domestic product, income per capita. Three ratios, US to China. Let's focus on that one. Okay, that's the blue line. In 1500, the average inhabitant of China was richer than the average inhabitant of North America. From the moment that Europeans began to settle in North America, that changed. And for most of the next 500 years, the story of world economic history is the great divergence as Westerners get much richer than everybody else. By 1978, the average American is 22 times richer than the average Chinese. And comparable divergence occurred between Britons and Indians, and even between North Americans and South Americans. After like, around about 1978, the direction of history changed. The most important thing to happen in our lifetimes is that the direction of economic history changed. Instead of a great divergence, we've had a great reconvergence. And as the line shows, we are fast approaching the point when the difference in income between the United States and China will not be 22 to 1. The ratio will be more like 5 to 1, 4 to 1, potentially soon 2 to 1. The fact that, after all the stimulus, the US economy has still not achieved what they like to call escape velocity, is part of this story of reconvergence. 
And we should understand our predicament in those terms. The great reconvergence is bound to continue if that's our growth rate. If our annual growth rate gets to 2% this year, that will be pretty good. Maybe it could be even higher. But even if China is slowing down, which it is, the slowdown represents a slowdown from 10% to maybe 7%. If you assume nothing dramatic changes in the next three years, we grow at maybe 2 or 3%, and they grow at maybe 7%. By 2017, China's economy will be bigger than that of the United States. That's not a wild futuristic projection. That's what the IMF says. And it's highly unlikely to be wrong, because we only have three years dramatically to increase our rate or reduce theirs. There you have it. By 2017, conceivably, in fact, highly likely, China's economy will be bigger than that of the United States. The first time since 1882 that that's happened. The first time in 1882 that there has been a bigger economy than the United States in the world. What's going on? Well, I want to suggest to you that there are two separate processes going on in the world today, one of which is good, and one of which is bad. And it's mostly the latter I'll talk about, but let's just say a few words about the first process to begin with. Development economists have been arguing for many years that the reason that poor countries are poor and stay poor is that they have bad institutions. They have corruption, for example. There's no rule of law, for example. And the developed economists have been arguing, this is true of, say, Paul Collier working on Africa, or Hernando de Soto working on Peru, that for a poor country to get richer, it has to improve its institutions. And guess what? That has been happening. The story of the Great Reconvergence is essentially the story of poor countries improving their institutions and achieving growth. And that is essentially what has happened in China. The crazy, planned economy of Mao dismantled after Deng Xiaoping came to power and increasingly replaced by market forces. Not wholly, but increasingly. That is the trend. That number one process, where poor countries get better institutions and get richer, is great. And we should welcome it. Hundreds of millions of people have been brought out of subsistence level living thanks to this process. But there's a second process, in many ways unrelated, whereby rich countries with good institutions have seen their institutions deteriorate. And as those institutions deteriorate, so too does their economic performance. That's the second process that I want to talk about. It's much less studied because the people who write about rich countries obsess about macroeconomics. They have endless and utterly futile debates about austerity and stimulus and quantitative easing and the tapering of quantitative easing, as if all that mattered once you are a rich country is how hard you pull on the macroeconomic levers. 
I'm here to tell you that the same applies to rich countries as applies to poor countries. The institutions really matter. And if the institutions are deteriorating, if they're getting worse, you can do all the stimulus you like. It will avail you not. This was the argument of my last book. You can also buy that. <laughs> Several copies. The argument was there are six things that the West developed and for many years monopolized. And I called them the killer apps just to try and interest my teenage kids in my work. That was the only reason. And the idea of the book, Civilization, was that for most of the last 500 years, these things like competition, the scientific revolution, the rule of law, modern medicine, the consumer society, the work ethic, these things only exist in the West. Until really recently, when the rest began to download them. Because it was always open source software. That, that's one of the important points about our killer apps. We never really stopped anybody copying us. When the Japanese started to copy the West, they were the first to do it, by the way, the first non-Western society to copy our institutions, to download the killer apps, was Japan in the Meiji era. And it worked pretty well. But for all kinds of reasons, it took a lot longer for China to download the killer apps. But as the other Asian economies did it, so the effect was repeated. Do these things, download these killer apps, and sure enough, regardless of what color your skin is, regardless of your history, regardless of your geography, regardless of your national character, whatever the heck that means, if you get the right institutions, if you create the right incentives, people will work harder, more productively, they will innovate. With private property rights, they'll accumulate capital. It works everywhere which is great. It means that all the theories of 100 years ago about why Westerners were richer than everybody else were phony. There wasn't some Protestant ethic that only people from Northern Europe and North America had. That wasn't true then. It's manifestly not true now. The new book focuses on the second phenomenon, institutional degeneration. Institutions in North America, institutions in Europe, getting worse. And there are four that I want to emphasize. Four distinct problems that I'm going to talk about tonight before we go to the question and answer session. I want to convince you that we have these four problems. Before I do that, I want to reassure you that this is not a declinist, depressing, beat yourself up exercise in masochism. No. I'm an optimist. <laughs> no, I really am. I am an optimist. Because all that I'm about to tell you that is wrong in the United States can be fixed. It's not written in our stars. It's not inevitable. We're not doomed. These are man-made problems. They are mostly man-made, so that's not sexist. <laughs> but they can be fixed by men and women. 
And so in that sense, you should regard the Great Degeneration not as yet another episode in the declinist lamentations, but rather as a call to arms. I'm here to tell you we can fix these things, but before we can fix them, we have to recognize what they are. We have to know what the problems are. We have to stop talking about the symptoms. Low growth, higher unemployment, the failure of fiscal and monetary stimulus, the growth of the debt, all these things are symptoms. I'm here to tell you about the underlying causes. The breach of contract between the generations. The strange phenomenon of over-complex regulation. The metamorphosis of the rule of law into the rule of lawyers. Any lawyers here? <laughs> when, when you ask that question, lawyers always go like this. <laughs> this is not personal. And finally, this applies to all of us, the decline in civil society. And I'm going to talk about why there aren't enough meetings like this and why there aren't enough societies like the New York Historical Society. So that's my story. Let me begin with the strange phenomenon of the breach of contract between the generations. Edmund Burke rightly observes in his reflections on the revolution in France that the real social contract is between the living and the dead and the unborn. That is the real social contract. Guess what? We've breached it massively. We have created a system which increasingly robs future generations to pay ourselves the current generation. Some very noisy handheld devices tonight. Here's some evidence. Consumption per capita by age cohort, 1960, 1981, 2007. Spot the difference. By the time you get to 2007, you find that people aged over 70 are consuming twice as much. Sir, could you do something about your phone? Because it seems to be suffering from a great degeneration of its own. <laughs> I'm happy to stamp on it. <laughs> I guess it's all my fault from talking about killer apps. This is, you know, what goes around comes around. This is a kind of wonkish chart, but the point I want to make is that your spending, your consumption at 70 plus is roughly double your consumption per capita at 20 and under. And this is part of a general phenomenon. The main driver is, of course, healthcare. When we talk about debts and deficits, which we do ad nauseam, we are really talking about this phenomenon a breach of contract between the generations. Our fiscal policy is hugely unbalanced to the disadvantage of future generations. Let me illustrate the point with some really ingenious calculations by my good friend Larry Kotlikoff at Boston University. Larry asked the question, what would you have to do now if you wanted to achieve generational equity? In other words, if you wanted to change fiscal policy so that future generations pay the same taxes we've paid, and receive the same entitlements that we, that we receive? And the answer is, you would have to 
cut all government expenditure immediately and permanently by 35%, or increase all federal taxes immediately and permanently by 65%. This is a platform few politicians are eager to run on <laughs> for the obvious reason that future generations don't vote. Fixing this problem is, in fact, virtually impossible in our current democratic system because, A, the off-balance sheet liabilities are not visible. We talk about the debt as if the unfunded liabilities of Medicare and Social Security are not part of it. Of course they are. And, B, because we don't take into account the young and the unborn when we make decisions. So when we talk about deficits and debts, we're really talking about the symptoms of a breach of contract between the generations. And I think this is ultimately going to be paralyzing to our politics. Not many people talk about this. There weren't many posters like this one at the last election. In fact, this is the only one I saw. Who is more important, junior or granddad? But that's the right question. Right now, the answer to that question is granddad. Granddad is twice as important as junior because we spend actually more than twice as much on the elderly, if you look at all levels of government, as we spend on the young. Do you think a society that operates that way has a bright and shining future ahead of it? I don't think so. So that's part one. Part two, the regulation nation. If you read the Wall Street Journal, you glimpsed this article this morning because I published a piece based on this chart. The Federal Register includes the regulations, page after page after page after page of regulation. And what is quite cool is that you can chart the growth of the Federal Register just by counting the pages each year, in excluding the blank pages to be absolutely fair and scrupulous. So if you do that, you'll see the trend as the blue line, indexed back to 1936, when there were about 2,600 pages in the Federal Register. Well, it's grown like topsy since then. In fact, uh, you've seen a 30-fold increase in the size of the Federal Register since 1936. But you say to me, oh, but Neil, the economy has grown since 1936, and so has the population. So of course there's more regulation. Really, I think that's a very valid point, so let's check it out. Here's the real GDP of the United States, rebased to 100 in 1936. It's grown by a factor of 12. Regulation times 30 economy times 12. There has only been one period in modern American history of significant deregulation. Only under one post-war president did the Federal Register shrink. No prizes for guessing who it was. Not mentioned today <laughs> at the Berlin Wall, but mentioned tonight by me Ronald Reagan, the only president, successfully to roll back the regulatory state. He actually shrank the Federal Register by 31%. The economy grew in the same eight-year period, in real terms, by 
Excessive complex regulation is the disease of which it pretends to be the cure. Please believe me. There are those who will tell you, oh, the financial crisis was caused by deregulation. Really? This is the least plausible explanation of the financial crisis you'll ever hear. And yet everyone believes it. It's actually falsifiable in a very straightforward way. The number of regulators, the number of employees of regulators, the number of regulations were all far greater in 2007 than they had been at the end of Ronald Reagan's presidency. We had a sustained period of increased regulation. Didn't work. The regulation didn't work, but there was plenty of it. And guess what? That's what complex regulation is like. The more complex it becomes, the less well it works. And one reason for that is the more complex it becomes, the more expensive it becomes. This is just how much it's estimated that regulatory costs now take out of the economy every year, $1.8 trillion, which incidentally is roughly the profits pre-tax of US corporations. It's, a, it's like an invisible 65% surcharge on all federal taxes. And it weighs more heavily on small business than on big. Way more. 36% more per employee if you employ fewer than 20 people compared with if you employ more than 500. The regulation nation is discriminating against small business. It's hard if you're a small businessman. I know this because I am one. In parenthesis, professors who want to talk about the economy should be made to start at least one business before they're allowed to speak. <laughs> should we make that a rule? How about that rule? I, I don't care about your Nobel Prize, dude. I want to see what businesses you've actually run because until you have tried to start a business, you actually don't know what it's like to create a job. I did this. I've done this twice, actually three times now. Three times. Twice in the UK, once in the US. It was harder to set up a business in New England than it was in Old England. It really was. And, and that's why. Because the moment you start the business, you're suddenly kind of confronted by a whole bunch of regulations that you better comply with, because if you don't, ooh, the liability could kill you. Could even send you to jail. No wonder we don't have as much job creation as we would like. Most jobs are created by small businesses getting bigger. They're not created by Google. Most jobs are created by little businesses like mine getting enough traction to hire some more people. We're trying the experiment of the obligatory health insurance. It's a headache. Take it from me, Massachusetts small businessman. Ha! Oh, the time it took to figure out health insurance for my employees, I was tearing my hair out. Coming soon to the US economy as a whole. There are 21 countries in the world that the World Bank can show are making it harder to do business. Only 21. All the rest are making it easier. How do you know this? Because you measure the number of days it takes to do seven basic things, beginning with starting a business. 
These seven different things, starting a business, getting an import license, recovering a debt when somebody doesn't pay up, can all be measured in days. Add together the number of days it takes to do all seven, and then calculate the change in percentage terms since 2006. As I said, in most countries, it's negative. Most countries have cut dramatically the number of days it takes to do this stuff. But not the United States. It takes 18% longer to do these things today than it did as recently as seven years ago. And we're in good company with such thriving economies as Zimbabwe, Burundi, and yes, Yemen. <laughs> now for the lawyers. You know, part of the problem is not just regulation, it's law. And just look at the tax code, if you want an example. Nine million words long. Excellent bedtime reading for insomniacs. It grew in size by 20% in the space of 10 years. It's probably now way more than 9 million words. I haven't done a recent count. That's not all. You don't even need super complex legislation and regulation to make money as a US lawyer. Lawyers play an interesting role in our system. Once it was regarded as a positive, and I think it probably was, say in the 1830s, But having, you know, between a quarter and a third of all people in the House of Representatives with law degrees and, say, two-fifths of all senators with law degrees has certain consequences. And one consequence is that the lawyer's mindset pervades all legislation. And the US lawyer's mindset is, let's cover every eventuality. Why have a 10-page law when a 1,000-page law will do? And without even needing a new law, let's just try the tort system. Yes, that's when you get yourself into court for doing something you didn't even know was wrong because somebody brings a class action against you. The cost of the tort system as a percentage of GDP is about three times what it is in the UK. And yet, these two systems are descended from common origins, the common law. What's going on here? This is what's going on. Did you receive a Southwest Airlines drink coupon through the purchase of a business select ticket prior to August 1st, 2010 and never redeem it? If yes, a legal settlement provides a replacement drink voucher entitling you to a free drink aboard a Southwest flight for every such drink coupon you did not redeem. A court authorized this notice. This is not a solicitation from a liar. This is real. So this, I'm not making this up. This really is an email that a friend of mine received. So I was interested. I looked into this. And sure enough, the plaintiffs, business class passengers aboard Southwest Airlines, did indeed get a free drink coupon if they were prepared to fill out the three-page form that you had to fill out to get it. <laughs> Cui bono to whose benefit all of this? Uh, well, the lawyers. The parties have since negotiated agreed attorney's fees in the amount of $3 million. That was the out-of-court settlement. This stuff goes on every day. And it affects medium-sized companies and really big companies. Ask BP. Ask BP what it's like to be on the end of a totally open-ended process of litigation. 
Nobody knows what the ultimate cost will be. This is not the rule of law, as it was understood by the founders. It's not just that the laws have become a jungle of complexity, it's the fact that the lawyers themselves now engage in rent-seeking behavior that is ultimately deleterious to our economy. It is a kind of additional tier of taxation that business has to pay. Don't think nobody has noticed. Measures of institutional quality around the world are identifying the deterioration of the rule of law in the United States. Look at this. The Canadian Fraser Institute, they're Canadians, they're neutral, <laughs> have a measure of the quality of the legal system. And it's really interesting to see this steep decline since the 90s, right down to the latest survey in 2010. You don't need to believe the Canadians. Try the Swiss. I'm sorry about this slide, but it's important to inflict it on you. The World Economic Forum, the Davos guys, they do a competitiveness survey every year. They construct the index on the basis mainly of survey data, and this is the survey data that they use for institutional quality. There are 22 different measures of institutional quality here. They range from property rights protected through to the costs of crime and violence, to the reliability of the police, to corporate ethics. The United States is not top in any category. It's only in the top 20 in one, which is investor protection. It is behind Hong Kong in every single one of those 22 categories. Why is it that our institutions are degenerating? Why is this happening? That's the most fundamental question I can pose tonight. I hope by now I've persuaded you that it is happening, but why? It's because we've given up. When Alexis de Tocqueville came to North America in the early 1830s, what most amazed him was the voluntary associations that he saw. The way Americans did their problem solving without the state. They would form a society like, say, the New York Historical Society. Let's preserve the history of this city. Let's do it. That was how America worked. That was how most problems got solved. People are abusing alcohol. Let's have a temperance society. No longer. 1995 was the year Robert Putnam published Bowling Alone, which charted the steep decline since the war of voluntary associations. This is an update. Since 95, American active membership of all different kinds of voluntary association, including even the religious, for which this country is supposed to be famous, it's gone down. It's gone down to European levels. When Tocqueville said, this is amazing, he meant by comparison with France. Tocqueville's joke was, if the French think there's a problem with alcohol consumption, brackets which they never will, but if they do, they will just write to the government and ask the government to do something about it. They won't form a temperance society. If Tocqueville came here today, he would assume that at some point since he published his book, France must have conquered the United States. <laughs> the dependency culture, the growth of dependence on the state is insidious, 
I have seen it destroy a country, it destroyed my own country, Scotland. It is destroying America. Has work got more physically demanding? And have Americans become less healthy? Well, you would have to assume the answers were yes, because the percentage of the population reliant on invalidity benefits has more than doubled. In my age group, the proportion of people receiving social security disability benefits is now very nearly 6%. 6% of all people my age? This can't be right. Because you know, work has got less physically demanding and we have in fact, on balance, got healthier. Something has gone wrong here. All sympathy due to people who genuinely suffer disability and cannot work. All sympathy to them. But let's ask ourselves what process is at work to cause that percentage to grow in a period of improving health and increasingly easy, physically easy work. The World Governance Indicators for the United States, going back to 1996, in every measure, this is on a scale incidentally that if, it, if you have 2.5, you're perfect. If you have minus 2.5, you are Somalia. What's interesting is that although the US is still in positive territory, it's all trending down. You might be tempted to look at this and say, hmm, control of corruption, not so good. Government effectiveness, not so good. Regulatory quality, not so good. Hmm, Latin America. But this would be unfair because if you look at equivalent data for Brazil or Mexico, the lines are trending up. They're improving their institutions at exactly the same time that ours are deteriorating. People are noticing. Alumni of Harvard Business School were surveyed last year by Michael Porter. Why do you think the US is falling behind? What are the areas where the US is falling behind? They answered effectiveness of the political system, education system, complexity of the tax code. The most problematic factors for doing business. This is the World Economic Forum. Don't take it from me. I'm just telling you the bad news. Inefficient government bureaucracy, tax rates, tax, re tax regulations, restrictive labor regulations. This was my favorite photograph of last year. <laughs> you know, if you want to understand how our system increasingly benefits a few very large corporations, just take a look. God knows what they were doing in there. Is there any light, really, anything to be cheerful about? I think there is. Thankfully, partly because of immigration, partly because of, of fertility, we're not aging as fast as the Japanese, the Germans, or the Chinese. We won't really get to the point where we have a quarter of our population 65 or over until the end of the century. Others will have been there long before. Point number one. Point number two, 
we have still got an innovative private sector that goes out and tries to do new stuff, like using hydraulic fracturing to extract natural gas that was previously inaccessible. You can worry about the environmental costs, you should worry about the environmental risks, but you shouldn't overstate them. The net benefits are really great. And they will make a huge difference in making manufacturing competitive in a way that it hasn't been for years. That isn't going to happen in Europe. But it is going to happen here. It is already happening here. And it's a reminder that Americans can still innovate. And that even when the federal government's energy policy is to subsidize uneconomic solar, we can still actually produce economically viable energy solutions. The world looks on in envy. The recovery is out there. There is actually a recovery happening, but you have to look regionally to see where it's happening. This was part of a recent study which identified the fastest growing parts of the United States. You'll notice that the Northeast is conspicuous by its absence. The growth rates, even through the crisis for North Dakota, Louisiana, Oregon, Alaska, West Virginia, and Texas, have been impressively high, right through 2008 to 2011, north of 2%. The recovery is out there. It is happening in some states, just not here. These are the states where growth has been negative, strongly negative in some cases. This is not just an energy story, ladies and gentlemen. It's also a regulatory story. We have a federal system. It's not all done in Washington. The states have some discretion. And it makes a difference. Here are four different surveys of business climate by state. And it's really interesting to see the states that keep cropping up in the top 10. Texas, 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 Texas. In the most recent survey I looked at done by the Kaufman Institute, New York ranked uh, 33rd, and that probably overstates the case since the survey didn't include all of the 50 states. This illustrates the point I began with. Institutions matter. Regulation matters. The rule of law matters. Fiscal policy matters. Civil society matters. You can't fix problems like these by printing money, much less by borrowing money. Let me conclude with one of the more memorable quotations <laughs> of recent months. Our, our Secretary of State, John Kerry, revealed one of the less well-known rights that Americans enjoy. <laughs> I, I couldn't find it in the Bill of Rights, but he told an audience of Berlin students, by the way, if you are ever going to make a joke in a speech, Germany is not the right country <laughs> to do that. <laughs> no, because they all wrote it down. Like, das ist sehr interessant. Dummheitsrecht. Faszinierend. In America, you have a right to be stupid if you want to be. Yeah. You do, it's true. We have a right to be stupid, and we keep exercising that right. 
We keep exercising the right to create a totally unsustainable fiscal policy and pretend we're not doing it. We exercise the right to regulate small business into a corner so that it stays small. We have the right to have stupid litigation every day of the week. We have the right to completely give up and let the government solve our problems instead of solving them ourselves. We have the right to be stupid. But we also have the right to be smart. And I believe that we will, in the end, wise up and that we can solve the problems that I've described to you because they are solvable. There's only one thing we really need to solve these problems, and that is courageous leadership. Please, let's find it. Thanks very much. So the rules of engagement, just to remind you, are if you want to ask a question, you have to go to the microphone. Uh, it wasn't mentioned, so I'll mention it. It has to be a question ending in a question mark, so you go up at the end of the sentence. And the fewer you know, preliminary sentences, the better, just for the sake of the other people who want to ask questions. I should add, <laughs> I have to hightail it out of you because I have to get to Switzerland tonight, or rather tomorrow morning, for the Bank for International Settlements conference, two days of wonkishness, um, which, which means that I can't stick around. We've got to knock it on the head, bang on 7.30, or it's going to be a nightmare getting to JFK. So with that, brevity is the soul of wit. First question, sir. Uh, first, I, I will say the sentence. I want to thank you for a most magnificent presentation. Thank you very much. And with some trepidation, I will admit I'm a lawyer. It's OK. <laughs> but, a, but a lawyer who, believe, who agrees with you that we have substituted the rule of lawyers for the rule of law. Thank you. Uh, but the question I have, and, and how do you solve that? And I wonder if you can comment on the English system, which is different from ours, about the loser uh, paying the costs, therefore a deterrent against bringing many of the cases that are uh, frivolous, yeah. at which I understand England, however, has modified greatly in its practice today. Yeah. Unfortunately, I think there are signs that, that the English system is going in that direction, but it's, uh, it's still a long way off. Yeah, there have to be downside risks to litigation, and there just aren't uh, anything like enough. And this encourages the kind of, of crazy lawsuit I described. I think there's another interesting point. I've been thinking a lot about this. I'm not a lawyer, so I, I say this with, with caution and, and due respect. I do think that judgments from a common law perspective are strikingly all over the map. I mean, you can get practically any judgment you like. The lack of reverence for the evolution through judicial decision of a body of law is a striking difference. British judges, I should say English judges, are much more constrained by a sense of being part of an evolutionary fabric and that you can't just make a judgment that's completely unconnected to previous judgments. I think inconsistency in the way that judges make decisions encourages opportunistic litigation, because there's always somebody who's going to give you a judgment of the sort that you want. So we probably need to look a little bit at that as well. But I do think the English system illustrates that there's no particular reason why we should have got ourselves to this place. Uh, and what we need to do is remember that as our 
rule of law deteriorates, uh, so competitiveness and competitive advantage is gained uh, by London relative uh, to New York, even by Hong Kong relative to New York. I was just in Hong Kong. Hong Kong has a lot to offer because it has the English system, uh, but it's right next to indeed part of the most rapidly growing economy in the world. So I think, you know, out of self-interest, American lawyers need to take a long, hard look in the mirror and ask, at what point do we get back to the rule of law? Thanks for your question. Yes, sir. As a securities class action lawyer, uh -oh. um, <laughs> you can I sue would, me. It can't, because to bring a securities class action, you have to plead fraud in your complaint. So it's, it's different from every other pleading that we have in the American British judicial system. Having said that, I want to ask about regulation. How do you separate regulation from those who are the regulators? We may have had an extremely large increase in the number of regulators under George Bush from the chart that you showed us. But certain of them, like Edward Cox at the head of the SEC, did nothing. Um, and you can have all the regulations you want, but if the people appointed to regulate don't regulate, the regulations are meaningless. This is a great point, and indeed, the Romans understood this. That's why they asked, quis custodiet ipsos custodes, which I don't need to translate for such an erudite audience, but <laughs> just in case anybody's been a little rusty with the Latin vocab lately, it's uh, who regulates the regulators? Who guards the guards? And, and this is a fundamental problem that I think we completely lost sight of as we allowed regulatory capture, regulatory arbitrage to proliferate. So in the book, I try to address this question. And I thought a lot about it because it really is a, a problem. Walter Badgett was a great Victorian journalist, editor of The Economist, wrote the definitive book on the English Constitution and the definitive book on 19th century central banking and financial regulation. Most people who know about Badgett, spelled oddly, Bagehot, think of the famous rule that in a crisis, the central bank should lend long, lend generously at a penal rate. We, we forgot the penal rate in our crisis. But there's much more to Badgett's Lombard Street than that. And one of the most important things that Badgett says is that there should be a pretty unitary regulator over the financial system, one powerful entity, in his case, the Bank of England. And it should not be entirely clear what rules the bank is following, except that it should have the discretion to come down hard uh, on those who are seen to overstep these not very clear marks. Famously, it was said that the governor of the Bank of England could uh, change behavior in the city of London by moving his eyebrows. The governor's eyebrows, this was shorthand for, the governor <clears throat> doesn't really like what you're doing, old chap. We've lost that because we created a jungle of, of regulation and umpteen regulators. We allowed the arbitrage and the capture to happen, and the regulators lost all their teeth. I mean, there was no real fear in the system. There was fear of the governor of the Bank of England in Badgett's day. You had to fear that the old lady of Threadneedle Street would raise her eyebrows at you. So my argument is for simplicity. Simplicity of regulation, greater discretion for regulators, fewer regulators, and teeth. There has to be an element of fear. The prison house has to be there looming in the back of your mind, not 
Ah, oh, are we compliant? Did we comply? Ask the compliance guys if we're compliant. That's the mentality that we have to, we have to fight. Uh, we have to create a greater sense of, is this the right thing to do? And might the eyebrows of some future ferocious Fed chairman be raised and condemn my firm to disappearance? Thanks for that question. I'm, I'm hoping you're not a lawyer, sir. If you are, no, no, sadly, I'm a journalist. The, uh, yes. What do you think is the best historical analogy to uh, renewable energy uh, uh, quotas or to the regulatory support, production tax credits, et cetera, et cetera? In other words, rent-seeking specifically for energy. Hmm. It's a really challenging question at the end of a long day. <laughs> there were. There were governments that sought to have energy policies in the 19th century. But in the 19th century, or indeed in the 18th century, your energy policy essentially consisted of trying to grab land that had coal. You know, Frederick the Great's interest in Silesia wasn't entirely for its scenery. <laughs> and similarly, the toing and froing in the Rhineland Ruhr area between France and Germany wasn't unrelated to the energy resources there. So I don't think there is a, a perfect analogy. I mean, part of what's interesting about the history of energy is that there was a period when wind power was a highly effective source of energy. The age of sail, the age of the windmill, go back to the 17th century. In the 17th century, the great race for colonization, for commerce and conquest was wind powered. I mean, people think of wind as kind of touchy-feely, lovable energy source. I mean, the people who committed their greatest acts of plunder in all of history were great believers in wind power. Uh, so, when we think about the history uh, of energy, we, we need to be mindful of the possibility of major technological change, but we need to be realistic. Our world is vastly more populous than the world of the 17th century, and our energy needs are far higher than the energy needs of Rembrandt and his contemporaries. The idea that we could somehow rely exclusively on solar, wind, and other sources of so-called renewable energy is, I think most serious people agree, a chimera. And that, that is why it seems to me we have to be, with all due caution about the environmental consequences, positive about the opportunities created by shale gas and, and tight oil. It's not really a credible option to say we don't do this. And I think when you read, as I've been doing recently, the most serious research on this published in journals like Science or produced by institutions like MIT, you see that, as with most major advances in energy, there, there are environmental risks, but they're not, in fact, so great that the water out of your tap is going to be on fire in a few weeks' time, as some people would have you believe. Yes, madam. Is that so much of what causes de degeneration is the change in civil society? And I wonder whether you can get behind why civil society changed. Is there a generational aspect to it? 
Is there something that we can understand why our character has changed? There's a great and interesting sociological literature on this. I mean, Putnam's argument had a lot to do with uh, changing family structure, TV, stay at home. I've even heard it argued, I had this discussion with Larry Summers recently, that we should probably be happy that the average American man isn't any longer a member of five different civic associations because he's actually spending some time with his his wife and kids, and that, you know, this is a positive. I struggled a bit with that, I have to admit, but it had all the brilliance of a summer's repost. <laughs> I, I have a somewhat different take, you know, from, from Robert Putnam. I, I think it is closely related to the growth of the state, and that as the state has grown, that has its own logic. The state grows because bureaucracies grow. I mean, that's what they do. And as the bureaucracy grows and finds new things to regulate, did you know that it's illegal to take a water hyacinth across a state boundary? That's a regulation you may have violated recently, I'm just warning you, florists in the room. These regulations proliferate and gradually, as citizens, we kind of become accepting that problems will be solved by, by government. Tocqueville anticipates this. At the end of Democracy in America, in book two, there's a totally brilliant passage. Reread it, go back to it, it's fantastic. He says, in the future, he's not specifically talking about the United States, he's talking about what will happen to democracies. He says, in the future, there will be an omniscient regulatory state that will take an, an interest, a benign, paternalistic, gentle interest. It won't be harsh, it will be subtle and gentle and insinuating in all that we do. It will regulate everything. It will quietly kill enterprise. It will quietly kill initiative. It will quietly, gently reduce us to the status of sheep. And I think that's the process that Tocqueville anticipated. And it's happened. And we kind of have become sheep. Except that we don't even have a particularly well-organized flock system anymore. And we tell ourselves, oh, we're so totally networked because we have Facebook. And I want to make it clear, I make it clear in the book, Facebook is not a substitute for real association. And it only actually is an effective tool for organization when it's used by real associations. I'm looking at my watch, and I'm acutely conscious that there are three people with questions, and I have run out of time. As I said, Facebook is no substitute. Government is no substitute. Only associations like this one, which you must join if you're not a member, <laughs> only associations like this will keep civil society alive in the United States and allow us to achieve that regeneration which I hope to live to see. Thank you very much indeed.